You're listening to the Hub City Church Podcast. To learn more about Hub City Church, including our gathering times, you can check out our website at albanyhubcity.com. Well, good morning. Yeah, the, um, the downtown twice around is so fun. We Last year, um, Steve Wilbert and I were standing next to each other, and we were watching the parade, and we said to each other, man, we got to get in this parade. What would we do? And we stood there stroking our chins, and right then around the corner was Willamette Community Church with the hot tub and a fire pit. And I thought, that's what we would do. That's exactly what it is. So I think this year we should maybe get a flow and barbecue some chicken wings and just throw them out. Should we do something like that? Let's, let's pray about this. Spirit-led. We'll have a meeting after church today. Yeah, it'll be fun. Um, <clears throat> guys, I'm excited. So we're, uh, I want to give you a little overview real quick, next couple of weeks. So we have two more Sundays, today and next Sunday, where we will still be in Matthew. Uh, today's finishing chapter four. And then next Sunday, because earlier this year, we already did a six-week series on Sermon on the Mount. We are going to cover Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew chapters five through seven, but kind of as a 30,000 foot overview of what Matthew is doing, what Jesus is doing in that. So if you want to get into like the deep weeds of like, oh, but there's, there's so much good stuff in that sermon. Uh, we do have a series that we will point to and you can go back and listen to that. Um, but then after that, then we're actually going to transition into Advent. There's an Advent season, about four Sundays there. Um, and we're going to kind of hit different themes on each Advent Sunday. And just a, just a heads up, I'm really excited, but our, our kind of worship team and pastoral team have kind of uh, we're together and we're meeting this week to finalize some stuff where well, we want to do it a little bit differently. So we want, it might look a little different than a traditional Hub City service. Uh, there might be a lot more visuals, a lot more music, a lot more just kind of in general feel kind of different, maybe shorter messages, but but still good stuff. And because for us, it's all worship. We don't have to, we don't have to, you know, fill a certain thing we have to do in order to worship God right, right? Um, so uh, we want to worship God well, but we really want to embody what Advent feels like. So just heads up, we'll get into Advent season and, and go into Christmas Eve and that kind of stuff. So they'll all look a little bit different than that. But uh, today we're finishing up chapter four of Matthew, which there's been a lot. If you remember, chapter four uh, is the temptation of Jesus, uh, where he's in the wilderness, right? There's been a lot in there. Greg taught last week um, uh, through Jesus and beginning his ministry and you know, to kind of catch us up a little bit, Jesus, if we're following him, just reading about him as a historical human, not just an idea, not just as somebody who's like, oh, you know, Jesus up in the clouds, that kind of thing. This was a historical, fully human, as well as fully God. But having those tumultuous first couple of years we read about his birth and coming out and all the stuff with Herod going on. And then he comes back on the scene as a grown man and meets John the Baptist and gets baptized. There's an incredible scene there. His baptism symbolizing that he will bring life, but it'll be through death. And nobody knows what that means yet. Jesus's temptation is kind of like hearkening back to Exodus days where Jesus is saying, hey, there is still temptation, but I am one who is here to crush the serpent. I'm here to beat that, resist the devil. Um, we looked at last week, John the Baptist was in prison. There's some stuff going on there. You can actually read more about that in the Gospel of Mark. He goes a little bit more in depth there. And Jesus' message, he comes out, same message, but he's embodying it fully in who he is. And it's repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand or near. 
He's ushering in this new kingdom of heaven for the people of God that is found in him, in his person, not in a place or a world power. So the question kind of becomes, as we're ending chapter four, okay, let's say we buy into this kingdom. It's coming, it's here, it's at hand. Who are, who gets to be a part of this kingdom? Who are the royal subjects to the king of this kingdom? What does it mean to even enter into this kingdom? What do you have to do? And that is something that Jesus is going to start here, and then he's going to continue on uh, for many, many chapters on what that looks like. So let's begin chapter 4, verse 18, with Jesus. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, And Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Okay, so just to get us back into like ancient map culture, I put a map up here of Galilee. Um, So Jesus has withdrawn. He's kind of, he's been in his hometown of Nazareth, which you can see down there. He's withdrawn. He's been walking by the Sea of Galilee. We know that uh, for last week that he's living in Capernaum now, which is a little bit, uh, north of Nazareth there and the Sea of Galilee there, the River Jordan is running into it. So you can kind of get a visual of like, just imagine he's walking by, there's this big sea going on. You guys, have you ever taken a, you know, little shoreline walk? You know, he's just kind of walking by that kind of thing. He's walking by and he comes across two fishermen, which is not unusual. Simon, who's Peter and his brother, fishing. Now let's talk about fishermen real quick. Does anybody fish here regularly? Like you would say, oh yeah, nice, okay. Now, if you, as, a, as an avid fisherman, if you had, you know, taken the time off of work, you had gone out, you've gotten everything prepared, you're in your boat, you've got a cool beverage in the cooler, you've got some beef jerky in your hand, whatever, and somebody comes by and yells to you at the shore, hey, stop everything you're doing and come follow me. Are you doing it? <laughs> Don't answer that. No. Like, it, it probably not, right? Just because it's like, wait, no, I have set myself up. This is what I'm going to do. Now, for most of us in this room, that might be true on like a hobby level. And for most of us, if not all, you can correct me later, fishing is not tied to our vocation. Like probably, and like none of us are, are like um, fishing to where we're commercial fishermen and we're stocking Moe's, like clam chowder, right? So for fishermen in Bible times, this was their lives' work. This was their career, not just something they wanted to do. And almost more than this, this was also tied to their family trade, as we'll see evidence later. Multiple generations would fish together. So Jesus is walking by the water. He walks by two fishermen brothers, casting their nets, meaning they weren't cleaning up. They weren't done for the day. They were still actively working. And he said to them, verse 19, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. I've lost to say, but I want to keep reading. Verse 21, and going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee and John, his brother. In the boat was Zebedee, their father, with their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Same thing. Immediately, they left the boat and their father and followed him. 
Now, a few things I want to say here. First, this is evidently Matthew's version of Jesus calling his first disciples. But as we like to do, we don't just stay in one spot. It's not the only version of Jesus calling his disciples. The gospel writer of John, gospel writer of Luke, have their own versions of this story. In John's gospel, Andrew's actually already a disciple of John the Baptist. And when they hear John the Baptist talking about Jesus being the Lamb of God, that they follow Jesus and want to stay where he is staying. They actually actively just leave John. They're his disciples, and they leave John and go follow Jesus. This is John 1.40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. That line is really cool. It has a lot of theology uh, implications later on. But there's like, that's a totally different scene, right? Totally different scene of how they met Jesus. In Luke's gospel, in chapter 5, Jesus is not alone, but he's teaching a great crowd of people near the sea, and he sees a boat. It's Simon Peter's boat, and he gets in and asks Simon to push the boat out into the water, turning around and creating this kind of natural amphitheater. So then he starts talking, the water's propelling his voice. And when he finishes teaching, he tells Peter to cast his nets into the water. Peter is skeptical, if you remember this story. He says, we've been casting all night. We haven't caught anything. He says, we'll cast again on the other side. But he does so, and they catch everything. They're worried that the nets will break, their boat will capsize. This is Luke chapter 5 verse 9. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So real quick on a nerdy note, as I was kind of learning about some of this stuff, there's this on display in Israel right now. They found a boat at the bottom of the Sea of Galilee. I put it up here for you guys. So they put it up, uh, they found it at the bottom and they've dated it. They've carbon dated it back to first century. It's anywhere between like, um, oh, I don't know the dates. I'm not going to pretend. But like way back then. And they actually, there's people who believe this is actually the disciples' boat, which how could you know? But pretty cool. And it's actually got the description on it. It's the Jesus boat, which is cool. Um, And I can send it to you later if you really want to zoom in. It's, It's insane. Like it's a very, very old, old boat. Anyways. All these accounts are incredible, right? And sometimes some people are like, well, why is it different? Why can't God just keep it straight? (laughs) You know, why can't he tell us plainly this kind of thing? And it's tough to say what really happened. How did these disciples first start following Jesus? And I think the key to understanding and being comfortable with reading different things in our scripture is not in the details of each narrative, but the conclusion of each narrative. No matter what the details were of what happened, when Jesus interacted and called these men to follow him, they left everything and followed him. This could be due to their desires for something more than what they had. This could be due to the fact that they had not continued in their schooling yet, and they were not considered for discipleship under a rabbi, yet here was this rabbi who looked at them and said, hey, You follow me. I'm willing to take you on as a disciple. 
It could be due to the unexplainable draw of Jesus and ultimately the draw to the Father. But another key phrase, at some level they understood what it would mean to say, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Now normally, if you run into someone who says, come follow me and we'll go catch some people, please run away. Please don't go with that. Don't, don't go with that person, right? But in the context of Matthew, it's, it's quite something different, right? It was common practice for rabbis to be able to choose their disciples, typically from a handful uh, or a handpicked special group of the kind of top talent. And it's not that weird to see Jesus tell them to follow him. But in the context of Matthew, it's quite something. See, John the Baptist came out of the wilderness to preach repentance and that the kingdom was near, but that one was coming who would usher in that kingdom, one who was so much greater than him, who he wasn't even worthy to untie his sandals. And his message was, go follow that guy, follow him. Here, Jesus being the one who was baptized, the one John the Baptist pointed to as the one he foretold about, now looks at these men and says, you know that person John the Baptist talked about, the Christ you have been waiting for, it's me. I hold the keys to this kingdom of heaven. I want to share that with you, and I want to bring you and others into that fold. Follow me. Using fishing lingo, we will become fishers of men, just like he uses farming language for farmers. Kingdom of heaven is like a seed planted, just like he uses stories for storytellers, right? He's giving them the insight that much like you know, the areas, the spots, the materials, and all that you need to catch fish, Jesus will show you the kingdom and all that is needed to welcome others into it. And it all begins and centers with following him, the king of that kingdom. It's not first about the followers, it's about the king. Who they were following is so much more important than who is following. But Jesus, through all Matthew has revealed to us so far, is truly the Christ who has come to save the people from their sins and usher in the good news that God's kingdom is coming to the people. And it's so close. You can feel it. Why would they not want to be a part of that? And there might be something, have you ever, ever heard something that's just so compelling that you thought, I can't not be a part of that? Like just a little thought experiment, if right now Costco is like 90% off of everything, <laughs> I'm leaving. I'm going. I mean, I don't know about you. We would probably show up. I mean, I'd get hot dog for sure, right? <laughs> But what's more compelling, when you think about that, and that's kind of, it's silly, right? But when you think about what's more compelling about God's good and perfect kingdom was so close, and they could be part of it and tell others about it. This is what, actually, sometimes we read about these disciples, is like they're just teenagers and they don't know what's going on. It's like they were hungry for the kingdom of heaven. They, they might have been uneducated, they might not have had a lot going on, kind of dead-end jobs and fishermen, but they wanted the kingdom of heaven. Do we want that? Does that fire in us? Would we immediately leave everything? Or would we take a long time to get our affairs in order, right? This wasn't just fire insurance for them. Jesus did not first tell them that if they didn't believe, they'd be eternally damned or something. No, he compelled them to a vision in himself as king and his message of his kingdom. This is all he gave them, and, he let, and they left everything to follow him. 
I think just real quick, I think one of the issues that's kind of become prevalent in the Christian church is phrases like, you don't have to do anything, but just accept Jesus as Lord and Savior and you will be saved. And in subtext, you will be happy and not struggle anything with it, anymore with anything ever, right? Now, obviously that's hyperbolic, but what happens with statements like that, although true, you don't have to earn your way to righteousness because of Jesus and the cross. But what can happen is a thinking that you can live your life how you want and now add Jesus's perfect love, protection, and acceptance on top of that. Like who wouldn't want that? Who wouldn't want to be like, cool, I get to be king and God still loves me. That's great. Like who wouldn't want that? But the pattern we're seeing in Matthew is the message of repent. Repent in your heart, in your actions, in your thinking. Turn from the self. Turn all that towards God and his plan. And now follow Jesus, leaving everything behind. Everything that once gave you meaning. Everything that could turn your heart away from God. Everything that's a stumbling block to you and to others around you. Everything that has become like God in our lives. Jesus is not an addition to our lives. He requires nothing less than everything. And now that Jesus has begun this message, ushering in this new way to be human, and he's gathering those who can't not be a part of it. And he's going to start spreading the word. Let's continue chapter 4, verse 23. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. This is an incredible show, right? Jesus is going throughout the region he grew up in, teaching in synagogues, which were their public gatherings of the reading of Scripture and worship of God. And it was a practice for the presiding leaders to let a special guest teacher or a fellow rabbi kind of come in, read the Scripture for that day, and teach on it. And Jesus was going around, gathering to gathering, teaching and proclaiming. Did you notice what he's proclaiming? The gospel of the kingdom. Now, most of us, if we were to say, hey, what's the gospel? We should and would include something about Jesus and the cross and resurrection. And all of that is true. And we would start dancing to a tune, right? It'd be awesome. That's an amazing ringtone. <laughs> I'm trying to think what song that is. Charlie Brown. Oh, is it Charlie Brown? Oh, I was like, it sounds so great. I know that song. <laughs> wow. Don't answer it. It's the devil calling. No, just kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. So if we were to ask, like, hey, what is the gospel? We should and, and should include Jesus and the cross and resurrection. That's so great because we know that story. But here, Jesus himself, he's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. The good news that God in his kingdom is in their midst. It's already happening. It's being more fully realized and ushered by Jesus himself. Everywhere he goes, he is bringing the presence of God. And with that, there's right now the chance of repentance for the people, for redemption and restoration into something so much greater. Because I think visually, there can be this thought that there's this kind of overwhelming kingdom of darkness over here. And then there's this brilliant kingdom of light over here. 
And we as humans are kind of on earth or somewhere in the middle. And we have to choose to be kind of good or bad sort of thing. We get to pick, right? The scriptures give a very different visual. According to God's word, we were all born into darkness. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. It's what we know. It's our natural fate. But Jesus is the light out of that darkness. Let me read you a few passages here. We saw this prophecy last week in Isaiah 9. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. In the gospel writer John, he writes, In him, this is about Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Peter, later in his life, he's an old man now, writes about God's people. They're not just loved by God. They're a whole new human, a whole new royal priesthood, a holy nation. And he writes this, that, they, that you, you people, you may proclaim now the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. Out of something and into something. You can't have a kingdom without a king. And Jesus is that king, but his kingdom is happening through his ministry as he's gathering his followers. His kingdom is a way out of the darkness right then and there, forsaking all things that were keeping the people from following him. And the gospel right here in Matthew 4 is that the kingdom of heaven was in, the, in their midst with them in the person of Jesus the Christ. And following him with everything would mean being redeemed out of the darkness of this world and into a whole different way to live that wouldn't just end with death here on earth, but would continue with God into eternity. And it's not just romantic words, though. Like, it's nice to say stuff like that. And you're like, okay, but I don't understand what that means. It's not just information or flashy sermons from Jesus. It's responding with action to that news, saying God is in your midst and then responding to that. Right? Jesus starts demonstrating what the kingdom looks like here and now. Matthew 4, 24. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Like, just look at that list. The sick, diseases, pains all over the body, oppressed by demons, seizures, People who could not walk or move anymore, and he healed them. Some of you have experienced great healing, or you've heard stories, and you can imagine for this still kind of rather unknown rabbi from Galilee to be preaching about this kingdom of heaven, and that is here now, and then to watch or experience a healing from a deep pain, an oppressive spirit, a permanent physical loss. It would be hard to hear that and see that and not believe, right? It would be really hard. Talk about the best possible sermon illustration you could ever have. But what I love about this in Jesus' narrative is that he's not just standing there trying to gain fame by just healing people left and right. He's actually going throughout. 
He's moving throughout. He's coming to the people, saying the kingdom of heaven is here now in your context. Not just here on the world kind of nebulously, but here now. He came to the people. He humbly walked all throughout Galilee. Historians believe there had been about 200 towns in Galilee at the time and that Jesus most likely visited them all if the, if the scriptures say that. It would have been quite inspiring, I'm sure, for these fishermen. That means they also followed Jesus throughout the town, throughout Galilee. For these fishermen turned disciples to follow Jesus around town after town, synagogue after synagogue, and watch the gospel of kingdom take root and watch the king of that kingdom do his stuff. And honestly, we could, we could read about healings, we can read about stuff, and there's many theological tracks we could go down with healing ministry and different modes of living out church ministry today, how people view all of that, and I have respect for a lot of that. Some scholars believe in Jesus' day, God allowed more demonic presence among the people so that the Messiah could be more greatly revealed in that day. Some scholars believe there are more miracles in Jesus' day because there wasn't the modern medicine that we have today. And even minor sicknesses then could kill someone where today we can be healed easily. There is healing though that happens today and it's quite remarkable and quite unexplainable, but it's not the only thing the kingdom of heaven offers. We still want the miracles. We want to see people healed. Amen? Right, or as one of my kids says, we want to see the magic of Jesus, which I love. We want the cripple to jump, the blind to see, the sick to be healed. But if that is all Jesus was interested in with his new kingdom, I think then, then that would be it. And people would go to Jesus as the great healer, but maybe not their savior. If you follow Jesus' story, his miracles were never apart from his proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom. His miracles were not to just show off his power, but to reveal the power of the infinite God over the finite and fragile world, where something like a paralytic who could not be healed on earth, we can't figure that out, was a simple healing for Jesus. Although Jesus displays the miraculous of the kingdom of heaven crashing into earth, the light coming into the darkness, it does come with a message. Because of what has been revealed to you, repent for the kingdom is happening. You just saw it. Repent, for the kingdom is happening. And it's so much greater. We're witnessing it in Matthew. Maybe you've witnessed it in your life, but there's the call to repent and believe because the kingdom is happening. Jesus is not just going to let this be a healing ministry from the heavens. Jesus is going to see all the crowds, all the people he's healed, or heard about his healings, and he's going to give them arguably the greatest sermon ever recorded. The next week, we're going to look at the Sermon on the Mount. He has the crowds. He has the people. He did the healing. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, and he's going to tell us and them what it's all about. And it's going to be something, it's going to be his manifesto for the kingdom and something akin to the Ten Commandments that was said so long ago for the present age. And yes, healing is available, but what's the point of being healed on earth if there's no future beyond death? So the purpose of the healings is to display the power of God on this earth, the light into the darkness, but so that the message of healing for the real ailment, the real problem behind the problems, sin which leads to death, is what could actually be healed. 
And if there was belief that Jesus could do what he did on earth, then why couldn't he do what he says he'd do on a spiritual level? Jesus comes with this message. Listen, just like a paralyzed man could walk again, your chains of sin can be broken. Just like a person could be freed of a demonic oppression, nothing can separate you from the love of God. Just like a disease could be cured, that thing that has plagued you your whole life could be healed and taken away. Do we believe it? Right? The physical healings were always meant to point us towards the more important spiritual healing that is the truest good news of the kingdom. There is healing available so that the space where man and God could not inhabit together can once again be mended and restored back to that Garden of Eden-like state. The truest good news of God's kingdom being in their midst is that God was once again dwelling with his people. Although it was veiled, although they and us would learn bits and pieces through Jesus' revealing and parables and teachings and healings, and forgiving of sins, the good news was that God once again wanted to dwell with his people. And this is what causes God's people to have compassion for others, not judgment. Remember, it's not the light over here and the darkness over there. It's darkness everywhere. But then there's a light that calls to those who believe and follow. And for anyone that responds to that light, believes and follows and looks back and sees a fellow brother or sister still searching in the darkness. That same darkness that you and I know so well, we can care for them. We can tell them about the light. We long for them to see the light. We pray for them and walk with them and hold their hand whether they ever see the light or reject it. But the way we model that light is not primarily in what we know or even what we do for God. It's in the model of Jesus' call to his disciples. It's in us giving everything to God. It's not salvation by addition, adding Jesus and his ways to better our already lives. It's salvation by subtraction, by giving up control of our life, dying to the self. In the words of Jesus later in Matthew, he says, whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Church, I can't tell you what everything is for you. I can't tell you what that, what that means, what that is. But we can, as a community, all ask ourselves the same question. If we believe that Jesus is calling us today to come and follow him, what do we need to leave behind? What have we kept anchoring us to that boat or that sandy shore or whatever you visualize when the disciples are in there being called by Jesus? What is it for you that is immediately leaving everything and following him? James and John left their vocation, their career, and their father. It's hard not to have excuses <laughs> after that. The same message is for us today. The kingdom of heaven is so near. The dwelling presence of God is alive and active in his people right now, in this room, in this city, through his spirit. And today we aren't a people who shrink back and keep holding on to death or whatever the world has for us, anchoring us. We are those who have been freed, as Peter said, to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Hub City, there's still so much beauty and so much restoration still to be had. And we get the blessed opportunity to be a part of seeing that 
kingdom here and now in Albany. And I pray that we would be a people who believe and live like we can't not be a part of that here in our city. Amen? So let's respond. It's the first thing we can do is respond in action and worship. I'm just saying, God, we want to give you everything. You guys know the list. You know how we do it. We're going to sing. We're going to pray. We're going to give of our riches for the community. We're going to go to the table. And we have the cup and the bread that Christ sacrificed on the cross. We, on this side of the cross, we have the cross. We have the resurrection story to look at it and say, Jesus, thank you. Like Jesus gave us everything. We, we, we cannot give him just a little bit, right? We give him, we leave immediately, leave everything and follow him.